Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Bill Stein, the CEO of Digital Realty Trust, the $35 billion data center REIT. As you know, in Leading Voices, we're presenting the real estate world from many different angles, and today's discussion is about a niche in the business, the data center business. While decidedly it's a niche business, Digital is now the nation's eighth largest REIT, and its business, which is global, touches all of us all the time. Bill was with the company when it IPO'd, as he will say, by the skin of its teeth in 2004, but it's now a blockbuster leader in its space. In the conversation, we talk about Bill's path to leadership, the company's growth, and most interesting to me, the challenges and opportunity and impacts in our ever-deepening technology-driven world, both on our daily lives and in businesses like digital. Mid-roll in the episode, we'll hear from Mike Hoshendale, a managing director with our sponsor, JLL, here in their San Francisco office. Mike is in JLL's Capital Markets Group with deep expertise in the data center business, and will provide some commentary about the overall trends in the business, complementing the conversation with Bill Stein. Our thanks to JLL, the global real estate services company, being the sponsor of Leading Voices. For more information, you can go to jll.com slash voices. First of all, thank you for doing this. My pleasure. When you started at this business, this was a, I, won't, I don't want to use the word mom and pop, but data centers weren't, the cloud, this was before the cloud. You started in this business before the cloud. When we started this business, I would say there was a cloud over the data center business. <laughs> exactly. And now there's a cloud <laughs> under the data center business pushing it up. <laughs> so uh, our IPO was uh, a little engine that almost didn't make it. Uh-huh. Uh, we, uh, When we IPO'd this company, we had a, a price range of 14 to $16. And this was after uh, data centers were considered somewhat toxic. There had been some bad experiences on the part of institutional investors. Mm-hmm. So I would say the institutional investors in the Northeast, New York and Boston in particular, didn't particularly uh, care for the story. And as the roadshow moved west into Chicago, we began to gain some traction. But we actually sold the deal in San Francisco on the West Coast. Uh, the last day of our roadshow, we had breakfast with uh, Franklin Funds, Alec Peters, and he put in an order for 15% of the deal. And we needed every bit of that to make that IPO happen. We priced it $12, so uh, $3 below the midpoint of $15. Uh-huh. Wow. But we never traded below $12. Just interesting thinking back to then and now, because now everybody, well, everyone who's listening to this podcast is listening digitally through the cloud on their mobile device, most likely. They're all worried about their data security because their credit cards and their passwords and they're worried about their privacy on Facebook and they're probably concurrently buying something on Amazon, which when this business started, none of that really happened. There's been, there's been a lot of change. A lot of and, change. And there'll be even more changes. I mean, the, the cloud has been a huge driver for our business yeah. when, since when we started this business. But moving forward, we're seeing you know, artificial intelligence is, is beginning to kick in as a demand driver. Uh, we'll see uh, a significant amount of demand from autonomous driving, uh, from Internet of Things. Uh, you know, we are fortunately right at the middle of all this. We're the, the heart of this uh, revolution. Okay, so the future is bright in the demand and need for this kind of service. Yes. 
So let's get back to that. And so let's put a pin in it there for and start at the beginning. So, Bill, we're we're both Pennsylvanians. We're at opposite ends of the state. I'm from Philly. I think you're from Pittsburgh. That's right. Just talk a little bit about growing up, school, ambitions. I know it was to be a CEO one day, but what what did you expect? So that's right. I grew up in western Pennsylvania, far less uh, sophisticated and refined than our brethren on the eastern side of the state. Absolutely true. Still is today. <laughs> you know, Pittsburgh, uh, I guess if you think about it, was uh, in some ways a mill town. When I grew up there, it was the uh, fortunes of the city were definitely uh, driven by the, the steel industry. And it was a cyclical business. So there were times when everything was good and there were times when it was tough. And finally the steel industry went away. Uh I would say that it was a, a place where relationships were important, friendships were important, family was important, and um, sports, which went along with that. So, and in particular, football, high school football, college football, University of Pittsburgh, and professional football, the Steelers. Mm-hmm. And when I was growing up, the Steelers uh, were winning a lot of Super Bowls, which made it a lot of fun. And you're still, still a Steelers fan, as I see. I remain a Steelers fan. If you come back to my office, you'll find a, a Steelers helmet sitting there and a few other uh, memorabilia. And then college was Princeton. So talk about college and maybe law school. Sure. Well, actually, uh, I went uh, to your neck of the woods, the Philadelphia area, for uh, for high school, for boarding school. I went to the Hill School in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. Okay. And then uh, went to Princeton. I studied classics, Greek and Latin. And uh, then I returned to Pittsburgh for law school, went to the University of Pittsburgh, and fully expected to uh, practice law and and you know remain in Western Pennsylvania. I joined my father's law firm after law school, which was an insurance defense firm. So I was a litigator. In fact, I was in a courtroom trying a lawsuit. I think twenty four or forty eight hours after I heard that I passed the bar exam. Congratulations! Uh, in Greene County, Pennsylvania, Waynesburg southwestern tip of the state, just across the border from West Virginia, one judge courthouse. Okay. Um, I did that for three years and then realized I didn't like that line of work at all and uh, decided I wanted to uh, move over to the corporate side with the idea of uh, perhaps migrating into business. So I took a job at the in the law department at, at Duquesne Light Company, the electric utility in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, Duquesne Light at the time was, was building a lot of nuclear power plants. So they, they needed a lot more cash than they were generating from their business. As a result, they were doing a, a, a major and in innovative financing every other month. Basically, they were hawking everything that wasn't nailed down, including uh, nuclear fuel and, and coal piles. Uh-huh. So I learned a lot as a lawyer working on those types of deals. There was a, a new chief financial officer that came in to Duquesne by the name of Wes Von Schack. Uh, he and I got to know each other. He appreciated my work as a lawyer, asked me if I'd like to join his team on the business side, and I said yes. So I, I moved over to the business side as an assistant treasurer. He was promoted to CEO, and uh, I was named treasurer of the company. Mm-hmm. So now you're doing deals. I was doing deals. I was doing a lot of deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest deal I did there, I did a, uh, a leverage sale and lease back of a nuclear power plant, Beaver Valley 2. And how did that go? It was fantastic. It was fabulous. 
It was interesting, too, because not only was it the financing, but we had to work on the rate-making treatment with the Pennsylvania Public Utilities Commission. Uh-huh. And then we took the cash from that and uh, basically shrunk the capitalization, but uh, we were able to uh, increase the bottom line earnings per share. And so what, what was next? So I was approached to join Westinghouse Credit, which uh, was the financial services subsidiary of Westinghouse Electric. So it was not only headquartered in Pittsburgh, it was headquartered in the same office building as Duquesne Light Company. And uh, I was uh, contacted by an investment banker friend of mine who said I should talk to them. And they were looking for somebody to do uh, independent power deals, project finance. So I, uh, I spoke to them, and made, they made me a job offer. Um, and it didn't work out at that time. I, I didn't join them. But uh, a year later, we re-engaged, and uh, they made me an offer on the commercial real estate side to uh, direct a real estate sale leaseback initiative. And uh, I accepted that offer and, and left Duquesne Light and joined Westinghouse Credit. Mm-hmm. So from nuclear power plants to real estate sale leasebacks? Yeah, basically, I'd say a stodgy bureaucratic electric utility to uh, the, the biggest deal-making shop in Pittsburgh. They were so one culture, big... Culturally, it was quite a shift. So talk about how, how that went there. And how long were you there? So I was there a total of six years, three years at Westinghouse Credit and three years at the parent company, Westinghouse Electric. Uh-huh. Westinghouse Credit was a, a very dynamic organization. Uh, the saying in the, in the company was that WCC, Westinghouse Credit Corporation, stood for We Change Constantly. <laughs> and uh, while I was there, I had four different jobs with uh, three different bosses in, in three years at Westinghouse Credit. But I was there during the, uh, when the SNL crisis kicked in in the early 90s. So uh, Westinghouse Credit became a workout and I was drafted by Westinghouse Electric, the, the parent company, to go down to uh, the headquarters at 11 Stanwyck Street in Pittsburgh to uh, assist with the workout from the, from the parent company, from headquarters. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did for uh, three years from 92 to 94. And you're working out real estate deals? Well, I was working out. I mean, un- unfortunately, what happened was that the Westinghouse credit um, – in essence, tanked the whole company. So we had to look for other businesses at Westinghouse that we could sell in order to make good on the the funds that were borrowed to bail out the credit corp. Got it. And so the parent being Westinghouse that makes or made then Generate, washers and dryers or whatever else really it was. really washers and dryers. They, they'd gotten out of that business, but... Uh, Big generators for uh, power plants, nuclear power plants. Uh, they had a lot of electrical controls. They own a big real estate development business, apart from Westinghouse Credit, uh, centered primarily in Naples, Florida. It was called Westinghouse Communities, uh, now known as WCI. Mm-hmm. It was quite successful. Yeah. Uh, they had a, a, a defense business headquartered in Baltimore that was very profitable. And they had... Uh, a broadcasting business. Um, the decision was made to, in fact, um, divest everything except the broadcasting business, and the broadcasting business acquired CBS. The headquarters was moved to CBS's headquarters in New York, 
and the uh, name of the company was changed from Westinghouse to CBS. Got it. And you were and you didn't, I wasn't, I you left, didn't chase them I to left, CBS. No, I left before that. <laughs> I left in 94. I joined a, a company called Trinet out here in San Francisco. Trinet, as a private company, had been a, a client of mine at Westinghouse Credit. It was part of the Scheidler Group. It was the mm-hmm. net lease business, mm-hmm. um, basically run by uh, Rob Holman and Mark Whiting. Uh, Henry Bullock ran the capital markets function at Scheidler. Those were uh, the people that I, I got to know when they were when I was at Westinghouse Credit. And they asked me to come on board as CFO, I want to say in late 94. I joined them in, I believe, the spring of 95. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then that, that business went up being sold to iStore, which will... That was a couple few years later? That was in uh, late 99. Okay, so you're in San Francisco as the CFO and then maybe the president of that business. President and COO, correct. And and talk about, so this is helping run a real estate company now and lots of transactions, and it's triple net lease business. So talk about what that meant for the dynamics of the company. Well, I mean, yeah, Trinet was basically a spread investing business. Uh-huh. So you, you borrow it at one rate, it's your raw material money, and you invest it um, hopefully at a higher rate of money, and you earn the spread. It was fairly pretty much that simple. Uh, Trinet uh, purchased office and industrial properties, mostly office, that were net leased to investment-grade credits for, I'd say, at least five years, ideally longer, ten we're going to contrast that to your business here because if you think about what the interaction is with your tenants in that business, which is pretty light credit business, I think, versus your interactions as this business has evolved to digital with the tenants in your properties. It's really different. I mean, uh, digital is a operationally intense business. I would say when we started out, it was uh, an asset oriented business similar to Trinet, but um, over time, particularly in the last uh, four years, we've transitioned to being far more of a customer-centric business. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's finish up on Trinet and then come to the start of digital. And so Trinet sold, and talk about that. Well, there's not much to say, really. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The company went and sold to iStar. Company uh, was sold to iStar. Uh, Trinet provided the ballast that allowed iStar to survive. Well, actually, after the business, after the business was sold, I joined PNC Bank in Pittsburgh. Okay. So the plan was to move back to Pittsburgh, and I was uh, running something called the Venture Bank at PNC, which was a uh, principally a technology lending business uh, modeled after Silicon Valley Bank. Mm-hmm. And um, the bank lost its appetite for uh, technology risk in uh, March of uh, 2001, uh-huh. which happens to correspond with the uh, NASDAQ crash that happened then. And so uh, up until then, the bank had agreed that I could set up shop out here in San Francisco. Um, but after that, I think they understood that the venture bank was going to be shut down, and they said that I could stay with the bank, but I'd have to come back to Pittsburgh for the next opportunity, and uh, the family did not want to do that. 
So I left PNC and started to do workouts back here in, uh, in the Bay Area, uh, sourcing deals from private equity firms. Mm-hmm. And along the way, I, uh, I met up with Rick Magnuson, who ran Shai Partners. I knew Rick when he was a banker at Merrill Lynch. And uh, he mentioned that he had a portfolio of data centers that he might want to take public as a REIT and asked me if I'd have any interest in in joining to uh, help him do that. And I said, sure, just call me when when you're ready. And, and he did. Uh-huh. So uh, I joined uh, GI Partners, the private equity predecessor to Digital Realty, in March of 2004. Uh, worked on the IPO. And then uh, we priced the IPO. I wouldn't say we successfully concluded the IPO, but we priced the IPO in November of 2004. How many data centers did the company have when it when I, when it IPO'd? I would say 21. 21 properties in and they weren't da- They weren't all data centers. I would say at least a third of them, maybe more, were uh, just office buildings that were leased to technology companies. And that was part, GI Partners had that because it was global innovation. That's what Global innovation. See, GI Partners uh, basically came out of C.B. Richard Ellis Investors. So in 2001, uh, C.B. Richard Ellis Investors won an RFP that CalPERS put out. Uh, they were looking, CalPERS was looking for firms to invest in the convergence of real estate and technology. And C.B. REI won that mandate. Uh, so CalPERS invested $500 million in the first uh, GI fund and uh, CB invested twenty five million. So you about two thirds of that was invested in what became digital realty. And the the interesting uh, piece of that is that uh, digital well GI uh, through the uh, through the uh, public markets execution uh, generated I believe sixty six percent return for Calpers net of net of its fees. That's pretty good. It was a good, yeah, good return really for good. the pensioners of California. Uh huh. And I think that uh, GI basically sold its last chunk of stock when uh, digital was trading in the low twenties. What's it trading at today? I think it closed at one fourteen, one fifteen. It's been as high as one twenty seven. So talk about the growth of the business. So you you go public. You're CFO and CIO, I believe. CFO so what, and chief, chief investment officer. Okay. The the growth was phenomenal. Now. Or obviously, it's been phenomenal. Uh, when we were private, and initially as a public company, we grew via acquisition and acquiring, for the most part, uh, cash flow, cash cash flowing properties with with very little vacancy. The REIT markets, particularly when uh, we were IPOing at the time, didn't uh, offer any value for land. Or vacancy, for that matter. Mm-hmm. So there, there wasn't much point in doing a doing value add investments prior to the IPO, mm-hmm. and we just really started doing value add. I would say a year after the IPO, when we when we bought 350 Cermak, which in itself is an interesting story. I think we paid 147 million dollars for it. It was a, a nine cap, and it was 30 percent vacant believe the NOI was about $11 million. And uh, today, the NOI is about $70 million. So now we, we invest a little over $300 million to, to generate that. 
but it, it's still uh, obviously a, an excellent return on investment. And it's basically full. Uh-huh. Now, back when you say value-add, I, I think of value-add in traditional real estate when we know what it was before it was under-managed, we know what it is after. But you're transitioning something during an upward period of technology that I don't know what a data center looked and felt like that was underutilized in 2004 to become what it is today. It, it's night and day. It's not like an apartment building that we painted pretty well and, and put in some granite some countertops. Some carpet and, and dishwashers, right? Yeah. You, you're changing the level of concept to this business in a huge way and in front of the flow of the ocean pushing you forward in terms of different business. It was a good value add. That's a, that's, a, that's a heck of a value <laughs> add. <laughs> of which you also probably didn't, when you bought it, you had one idea value add, but then, again, the opportunity has morphed every year into something quite different, I, I believe. I'd say the demand drivers have evolved over time. So, well, talk about the demand drivers and talk about what your what what your off how your offerings has have changed as well, because you're more service oriented. I believe you're going to think about your relationship with your tenants as partners, maybe. And many of the tenants are tech companies, but I don't know that. Some are tech companies. Some are probably banks, right? Whatever. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, first of all, over time, well, when we first started out, we were selling space, real estate space and access to power. And when we IPO'd, we had one property in London, everything else was in the US. Mm -hmm. So in 2005, we purchased, uh, or we acquired a number of properties in Europe. And in 2010, we made our first investment in Asia when we bought a a property that had been in bankruptcy in Singapore. Mm -hmm. So we expanded geographically first. And then uh, in, uh, in 2015, we acquired a company by the name of Telex. And Telex happened to be a, a, a customer of ours, but they were in the, uh, the co-location and, and interconnection business. Up until we purchased Telex, I would say we predominantly leased large chunks of real estate, data center space, to um, either, so you use the example of financial institutions, but it could be uh, uh, technology companies, banks, or co-location companies like Telex or Equinix that would resell the space in smaller chunks. So we were considered a wholesale provider and companies like Telex and Equinix were considered retail. They would take our space and, and mark it up and sell it in smaller chunks, mm-hmm. just like a traditional wholesale retailer relationship. Uh, the other thing that, that Telex did similar to uh, Equinix is they, had, uh, they were in the interconnection business, which made so in, in these data centers, there's typically what's called a meet-me room. A meet-me. Meet-me room. So, I mean, data is stored on servers, and it's analyzed on servers. But it has to be transported to the server from somewhere. So it's generated somewhere, and then <laughs> it goes to the server. And then typically it, it leaves the server and goes somewhere else to be used in some fashion. Right. And so within a, a data center, um, the, uh, an enterprise company, for example, would go into a meet-me room to a network provider. So call it an ATT and Verizon, for example. 
to have that data transmitted somewhere else in the U.S. or the world. And I, you know, theoretically, the network company could connect directly to the suite of the uh, enterprise company inside the data center, but that would be chaos. So the Mimi rooms, the pipe into the building and the pipe out of the building? It is. Kind of? And there's one pipe in and one pipe out? The- well, there, there are multiple pipes in. There are multiple okay. fiber providers. Um, and then there are companies that connect to each other inside the data center as well. So it, they don't have to be network providers. An enterprise uh, Today, an enterprise company may well and will likely be connecting to a cloud service provider. Uh-huh. So uh, the, the model that, uh, that we see today is something called hybrid cloud. So if we take your company, for example, uh, you may well run Office 365. We do. Okay. So in order to uh, run Office 365, you're working on the Microsoft cloud. Correct. So a lot of companies uh, use Office 365. And those companies all need to connect to Microsoft. Um, it works well if they're on one of our campuses, and Microsoft is one of our, on one of our campuses. They can connect directly to um, their uh, Office 365. In addition, they may well use Oracle for uh, payroll or, or Workday for payroll. Or they might use uh, um, SAP as a, as a service provider. Right. They could also use Amazon or, uh, or Google. Right. So, uh, or Salesforce for a customer relationship manage- management software. So everyone's connected through the cloud to all of these kind of providers, so we which have we all, now know. We have these providers sitting on our campuses, and then the enterprise companies sit on the campuses as well and connect to the cloud service providers. Fair deal. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what interconnection means. Uh-huh. Now, initially, and the other part of interconnection, particularly with the Telex platform, was, uh, was content. So Netflix would sit inside um, Telex and uh, connect to, say, Comcast or Time Warner. And those movies would come out to your house, for example. Right. And I'm guessing that at the beginning of this story, when these things weren't kind of happening in a low level, they've speeded up in terms of all the amount of interconnections that are happening. And I'm also guessing that when you started this, you're a landlord, and maybe now you're half a landlord and half a service provider. I'm trying to think of words that help articulate how your business has evolved with this, or are you just a bigger landlord now? No, I'd say we've changed our, uh, our, percep- our perspective or our orientation. Uh-huh. As I said, when we started out, we were a landlord thinking in terms of earning a maximum return on an individual asset. Right. Now we're focused on the, on the customer relationship and providing uh, solutions to those customers. Part of that solution is space. Part of that solution is power. Part of that solution is, is interconnection. And part of that is other products. Mm-hmm. We, have, we actually have, we have a software-defined network program now. We call it the Service Exchange. And it allows uh, customers to basically plug touch a screen and uh, connect to uh, cloud service providers virtually mm-hmm. without having to have individual uh, cables connected. And I don't want to get too technical about it, but as a kind of go back to the real estate side and then think of the services side maybe separately is 
how much, and then think of also your culture within this, because you're kind of a real estate company and you started that way and you're structured as a REIT, but then you have all the service provision as part of the business and your team is probably not a lot of rethinking team. It's probably probably a lot of tech thinking team and service thinking team to that kind of customer. So how does how does the, how has that evolved over the years? Well, clearly initially we were all real estate. Over time, I'd say, probably starting with the Telex acquisition, we brought more uh, tech and telecom talent into the company. Right. I think it's still, I mean, I think, for example, the salespeople have always been um, less real estate-based and more um, tech-based. So uh, these were people that were used to selling to the chief information officers and chief technology officers of enterprise companies. So they, for example, they could be software salesmen mm-hmm. before they come here. And, and we've tried to bring uh, real estate leasing people in as salespeople, but it just hasn't worked out very well. There's no leasing to the, it's just, a, it's fascinating. It's a different business. I've sat with you over the years talking about this as it's moved further and further from the mothership of the words we use in real estate, like leasing, because that's, there's some of it, but not really. Yeah. I mean, the document might say lease, the contract that reflects the mutual obligations. Right. And there are obligations that you might find in a typical lease, uh-huh. such as paying your rent every month and uh, escalations. Right. Uh, renewal options at, uh, you know, call it the, the greater of fair market value or 3% up from the last lease payment, last rental payment. So there are terms that are uh, more real estate oriented. But then there are service level obligations that are very much you would not find in a typical real estate lease. You yeah. find them in any real estate lease. And, and talk about how sticky this is at the end of the lease term and how much you have had to keep up to date with them through the lease term so that the end lease term they don't go to a different building that's does it is there a leapfrog of technology of what's in the place and how you relate to the client? So that at the end of the lease term they leave or they can't leave? Is it so the, our, our, our customers, our clients, uh, own the servers. And that's where you're going to find the change in technology. And those servers are typically refreshed every three to four years. I would say our, so what we provide is, is a secure space. And we provide access to power. Uh, we provide um, connectivity. We provide power redundancy. So if the um, power lines go down, electric utility, for whatever reason, doesn't operate, uh, we'll have initially batteries in our data centers that kick on to keep the servers running, and mm-hmm. then generators. Mm-hmm. It takes about a minute for the generators to kick in. That's why you have batteries. Mm-hmm. Um, that technology has been around for a long time. I mean, over time, there's been a switch from analog to digital, just like there has in everything. So 10 or 15 years ago, you might have had dials, or today you have digital readouts. Battery technology is, is changing today somewhat. So you'll have uh, batteries today that last longer and don't need to be replaced as much, but you can replace the old batteries with the new. Uh, there's some, you know, some of the applications now are requiring um, more power per square foot. 
So when a, a tenant, uh, if a tenant leaves, you may have to, quote, densify the space, add more mm-hmm. power. Mm-hmm. But that can be done. But I'd say in general, your, your tenants are quite sticky because uh, it's an expensive proposition to leave. Mm-hmm. You have to move all your equipment and you need to run typically in parallel uh, somewhere else while this is running to make sure everything's going to run properly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and today's paper talked about Microsoft uh, now being larger than Apple and part of that growth was their cloud business. And we read every day about Amazon having a huge part of the cloud business. Do they have their own spaces and do, or do they lease from you or both? Or are they part of your ecosystem? They have to be somehow. All of the above. So um, they will own some space uh, and they lease from us and they're definitely part of our ecosystem. <laughs> and, and interesting, I also think in that business of redundancy, and so because you have to have two... It has to be totally redundant so that I can bank if there's a problem where my bank is. Do you offer, like, does your service make it easier for them to be redundant somewhere else? Or is that they don't care where the data center is, they just have to have a redundant place? Well, they do. Uh, I mean, first of all, there's there's redundancy in the sense of, as I said, there's there's backup power should the power go down. Uh-huh. So our our data centers have had an excellent record over the years of operating reliability. Mm-hmm. We strive for five nines. We're that's ninety nine point nine 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 percent uptime. We're typically six nines, so that's that's very little that's downside. Pretty good. That's yeah, little downtime. That's pretty good, them. right? But that's what uh, that's one of the things the customers are paying us for, of course. Um, and then the the cloud companies, a number of them now. Uh, have what they call availability zones. So they'll have three availability zones within a market. And that allows them to fail over to an availability zone if, if, if something bad happens uh-huh. in one of the availability zones. Um, and, you know, we obviously would like to to get the, the customer's business in all three availability zones. Sometimes we don't have locations in all three zones. Right. Um, sometimes we may not even have a, a location in two zones. Uh-huh. But uh, that's certainly the way a lot of them do business today on the cloud side. Uh, the, uh, the large financial institutions could have something similar. They might have two data centers running in parallel that are, you know, a sufficient distance apart that they won't be taken out by, a, by an event, if you will, um, but close enough that uh, the data can move back and forth easily. And then they'll have a third one that's uh, a backup that's in the same area. So slightly different, but the same idea. I hope that you're enjoying the interview with Bill Stein. I had the chance to connect with Mike Hoshendale, a managing director with JLL and their capital markets group here in San Francisco. Mike, what do you see as the major drivers and changes coming up in the data center business? I would say there are two trends, honestly, that that I'm watching. One is continued monetization of enterprise-owned facilities. Many corporate end users are now realizing that they don't need to own their critical facilities. In fact, oftentimes it's much better both economically and in terms of flexibility to satisfy their compute requirements either in a co-location or a cloud environment. I would say the other key trend that we are following 
is a shift from what has historically been an asset investment business into more of, a, of an operational business. The data center market had, it had its origins around investing in assets and infrastructure. And I think we're really seeing that these days, it's much more about operating facilities and providing services to end users. And so there, there has been a, a shift in terms of how those types of providers behave, uh, the things that they care about, and ultimately how transactions are structured. Now, back to the conversation with Bill Stein. Talk about kind of size and scale of business, talk about competition, and talk about being global. And, and but So I'll take it in some order. Um, one order is you're the largest in this space, certainly in the REIT world, by far. In terms of uh, square footage, I would say, yes. Just give a, could you give a sense of? So uh, I would tell you that uh, Equinix and Digital are the two largest players. And the next uh, largest are probably 20% of our size. Okay. And for a small company, I know there's a lot of small data center providers out there. There's things you do they can't do. But it's not the barriers to entry aren't crazy, so that people can't start those businesses. Maybe they are. Help help us think about that. I think the barriers to entry are are, are becoming higher right now. Uh, certainly, in terms of cloud service providers who are to who care about time to market. So, what they care about is how quickly a data center provider can get them up and running, and so they measure. Uh, the amount of time that it takes a, a vendor to reach an agreement on terms and then to document that and then to, to build the data center and get it up and running. We just completed a, a building in uh, northern Virginia for one of our, our good customers here on the West Coast. And um, we brought it up in less than eight months, which is really very good. Yeah. And... Uh, we brought it in at under $6,000 per gate, per kilowatt, which is excellent. So it's cost and it's time to deliver. And then it's where all can you do it? You know, how, how, where do you, where can you deliver product? And to the extent you, I can work off of one contract for multiple locations, and I being the customer, that saves the customer time. <laughs> so I think uh, I think having the global f- footprint is a tremendous competitive advantage. The cloud service providers also need to be able to look around where they've landed and say, I can expand here because their businesses are growing rapidly. So it's absolutely critical that uh, we show them the, the ability to expand at that location. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've done. We, we're building these huge campuses in various places around the world that allows them to to grow in place. Mm-hmm. Every time they move to a different location, they have to invest significant dollars in a new network, new network nodes. And, um, and so to the extent they can invest or just stay on one campus, that, that saves them quite a bit of money and in, in operating costs as well. The, you know, one team can, can work there. Right. instead of running up and down a highway to a different location. Right. It's interesting. It, it happens in other parts of the real estate business as well, but probably particularly with you guys, 
it's not co- it's probably less cost sensitive than it is trust sensitive it's, it's certainty of delivery has to be the first and foremost certainty element. of delivery and that it will operate as advertised and trust which is one of the headlines right. on your website kind of again and again which is i know what's going to happen i know what's going to work and and talk about being global, both from the standpoint of opportunity, and you're now getting into South America through a merger. Talk about that, and talk about what what the future means for that, as well as what it means for you running a global company. So, well, it's certainly not easy running a, a company that spans the globe. And emails come in all the time. I bet they do. So I get up early, and uh, I'm on my uh, iPad looking at what's come in overnight. My wife comes in and sees me while I'm drinking my coffee. She says, what are you doing? I'm sort of checking emails. She said, do you ever stop? I said, no. None of us stop, but I can't imagine what it would be for you, given that kind of dynamic. That's right. So, uh, and what's, so these, these customers are obviously very large, and the, the orders are getting larger. So the, the orders are, are thus lumpy. One of the advantages of being global and having a lot of different customers is that lumpiness is spread out pretty well. Yes. You know, they don't, the same customer doesn't order at the same time at every location around the globe. And multiple customers don't order at the same time in the same region. Mm-hmm. So that is a definite advantage. We, we did announce that we are uh, acquiring a company by the name of Ascenti in Brazil. And we're doing that in joint venture with uh, Brookfield, large Canadian asset manager that's been in Brazil for over 100 years. And that deal should close uh, this month, December of 18. And that's a, a case where, again, our customers, um, I think we're encouraging us and, and probably encouraging the CEO of this company uh, to get together. Uh-huh. And um, I think it will work out well for both of us you know in terms of risk people think uh, brazil emerging markets it's definitely an emerging market but seventy uh, percent of Ascenti's business is in dollar denominated leases the other thirty percent um, is in the local currency but that corresponds more or less to their operating expenses but because seventy percent are in dollars they can finance in dollars right and then ninety percent of their leases are with investment grade customers U.S. cloud companies, same companies we have. Mm-hmm. So um, the interesting f- footnote here is unlevered returns, current returns, development yields in Brazil are high teens, low 20s. It's pretty nice if you can de-risk that. In a, in a dollar-based stream. And, and what does that, you haven't been in South America. I'm just imagining our analog person there who's playing with their cell phone and trying to watch Netflix or whatever they watch in South America, they have the same demand and a burgeoning demand for the same data services that we have. And they're being served by less institutional companies like yours. Now you get to have the foothold into a market that is only going to grow. No, that's absolutely right. So clearly it's underpenetrated given its economic growth. Right. So there's there's a lot of potential there. It's there, there it's an excellent opportunity. Yeah, I bet. And and so at the beginning of the conversation we talked about this only goes towards growth, not grow 
goes towards shrinkage in terms of the demand for this kind of business. And you talked about artificial intelligence. You talked about autonomous vehicles. What are those things that will drive this in that way? And what are the surprises for our listeners about the technologies that you get to look into to understand the future drivers of that business? Well, we've already hit on it. Um, So Internet of Things. Uh, these little sensors that are in your home. You, know, you might have a, uh, an Amazon device that you talk to that will turn on your lights or uh, that will search the Internet for you or might go grocery shopping for you. Right. That, that could be a Google device too or an Apple device. Uh, and the motion detectors um, inside your house where you can look on your phone and, and see who's in your house or who's out in your front yard. So those those are all little little things. Um, GE uh, on the Internet of Things uh, front has sensors inside their jet engines, so that uh, when they land, they immediately download uh, anything that didn't work properly inside that engine to uh, the mothership of GE, and it can be analyzed while that plane is on the ground. Um, you know, streetlights. Streetlights. Traffic poles have sensors to evaluate traffic. Like if you go on Google Maps, you can see what the traffic is. Mm -hmm. It's because there's sensors up there that send all that data back. So that's all Internet of Things. Artificial intelligence is uh, taking all this data that's being collected and analyzing it and trying to predict human behavior based on that data. Autonomous driving, you're probably familiar with what Uber did for a while in San Francisco. They actually are still doing it in Pittsburgh. I think they're doing it in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And right now there's some there's a human in the car to make sure that the car doesn't go off the rails, so to speak. Uh, but that requires a tremendous amount of data to keep the car on the road and going through intersections when lights turn and avoiding other moving vehicles around it. So each of these things are exponentially by, by increasing way, what you're talking about. Virtual reality, too. Right now it's a, it's a game. But it'll be something other than that eventually. It hasn't been for me, but I think it is. It's already yeah, all over. For this. realtors. You can put on a headset and walk through you know, a, a building or a house that you are, are thinking about purchasing. It's interesting. One of the themes in the podcast that comes up a couple times is I'm, I'm a cyclist, and when I ride, I'm watching a little bike computer. It didn't occur to me until we're talking that while I'm watching the bike computer, that bike computer is watching me, and the cloud is watching me, and the cloud knows my heartbeat. The cloud knows what my heartbeat does on what hills, and that's fueling your business. You're getting a cent of a cent of a cent about that, but it just increases that demand because as we become more addicted to this stuff, it's more entwined with our lives. The cloud doesn't know your name, but it knows everything else about you. That's exactly it knows right. your age, knows your height, knows your weight. Yep. So should this is not topic of our conversation. Should we be scared? What are, what are, where are the places around that from a societal place? We're not philosophers here, but, you know, there's these are good things and they can be bad things. There are, and there's been a fair bit in the media right now as to guardrails and the protections that uh, these uh, massive data collectors uh, need to have to keep uh, 
some of the bad people from gaining access to that data. Okay. So in how many countries are you in? So we're currently in 12 countries, Matt, and when our Ascenti deal closes, we'll be in 13, Brazil being the new country. Brazil is the eighth largest economy in the world, and it has the fifth largest population. So, so Bill, and, and we've been friends during your tenure at this company, and so you were the long-term CFO and CIO. There was a leadership transition where you became CEO. Um, talk about how your perspective changed, both from a management standpoint and a vision standpoint about the company, and then what's happened since then, and the kind of muscles you have to flex in this chair versus the other chair. So the first thing that happens when, you, when you're promoted is that your, your former peers are now your direct reports. And they say it's lonely at the top, and it is lonely at the top. Yep. Because you, you can't communicate with your peers, your former peers, the way you once did. So you have to find other people to talk to. And then you basically are, are, are driving the entire company. And in this case, I mean, the first thing to do is figure out whether you got the right talent in the right chairs. We didn't, so we had to make some changes. Yeah, you make an assessment around the culture. We had to change the culture. Um, you make a, an assessment around uh, the um, processes and systems. Those had to be upgraded to reflect the new orientation of the customer of the company, which was I felt needed to transition from being asset centric to customer centric. In addition to being focused on the co-location interconnection business, which was you know, more particle intensive. So again, processes and systems are more important. And you as CEO, when you're CFO, CIO, my experience is you have to go up two, three levels in terms of perspective and vision for a business. And was that at the same, and you did that at that time, but also the business was changing so rapidly at the same time. I don't know what the credit for you to do that, but also just the, de- the demands that were pulling you to go there. I mean, it, it kind of raises an interesting point because when we hire today, and in fact, when we were hiring you know, a few years back, we had to hire leaders, not that could meet the company's needs today, but to meet the company's needs that we expected would exist in the future. Because this company is, well, it's growing so much and it's evolving so rapidly. Uh-huh. And sometimes you get it right and sometimes you don't when you hire people. Uh-huh. With that type of uncertainty is what the future will, will be. It's interesting. When I think of real estate companies and the people we've talked to through the podcast series, which is folks I know, real estate companies look at change in terms of pure growth. They haven't traditionally had to look at change in terms of the basics of what they do and how they deliver it. And there have been leapfrog times. I think it's happening now throughout the real estate industry finally, actually. You know, office, apartments, hospitality. They're bringing that new level of service and that new level of um, common areas, I guess. I don't know the right word. That hospitalization of this business. But you've had to do that all along. I mean, that's been just the essential demand in this business where it's more obvious. It's what's happened uh, within our customer base. 
in order to serve our customers effectively, we have to evolve at the same pace. And, and do you have a different level of inspiration from those kinds of customers than what you see in the real estate business, which may feel stodgy as compared to you get to talk to those folks who really do look at blue sky every day? Without a doubt. I mean, this is the this is the most dynamic part of the real estate industry. Got to be. They're, you can get up to different challenges every day, and it's 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 so much fun. I couldn't imagine doing anything else at this point. I I invest in apartments. I like the risk profile. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But I uh, I'm glad that I have invested my career in data centers. So, Bill, help us think about the dynamics of being both a real estate company and a technology company at the same time and how you manage that culturally and how you manage that with your clients. So culturally, we have uh, talent in the organization that is very much uh, technology-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for example, as I, me- I think I mentioned that we have salespeople that are generally from the technology world. Uh, supporting the salespeople, we have both sales engineers and solution architects. Both functions report to our, our CTO or chief technical officer. And the role of the sales engineer is to really figure out what the technical layout is of the uh, from a, a power and air conditioning standpoint. The solution architects are supposed to look at the uh, applications on the servers. What is the client actually going to use in there? And, uh, and what does the layout on our end need to be in order to accommodate those applications? Um, our CTO is also responsible for innovation or R&D. There aren't many real estate companies that, that uh, fund R&D programs. And uh, innovation here is trying to figure out where the puck is headed and, and get there before the puck gets there. You have to do it. And I would think that in your relationships with your clients that the level of joint planning for their needs must be huge. It is. And, and so when we, and when we bring uh, so our CTO to the table, or we just hired a, a chief cybersecurity officer who was the uh, chief cybersecurity at Microsoft in Asia based in Singapore, when we bring individuals like that to the table with our customers, uh, it shows our commitment to their business that mm-hmm. we've made those types of investment in talent at this company. Mm-hmm. It's great. Bill, I, I, I want to thank you. I, I asked one question at the end of every one of these interviews, which is if you had advice for a young person getting into the real estate business, what would that advice be? Well, obviously, I think data centers are a good place to be right now. (laughs) (laughs) Come work at Digital Realty Trust. It's an excellent business. Um, Look, um, don't be afraid to take risks. Take educated risks, but be open to new opportunities in your career. I would say, at least for myself and I think for others, um, integrity really matters. Ethics matters transparency you know try not to get emotional too emotional you, you might be upset but keep that to yourself keep your head on straight and um, relationships matter too and you never know um, when a friendship that you formed a long time ago might uh, 
might matter. It's a long game. It's we a found very that long time. It's a really a long game. And it's interesting because your career is instructive in this, in that mid-career you went to this niche little business and took a risk on an IPO that was an uncertainty. And you s- entered into a, I think we said a $700 million business that's become $36 billion in a space that no one could have imagined would have the growth and relevance to everyone on the planet that it does have today. This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. The firm's in-depth local market and global investor knowledge delivers the best-in-class solutions for clients. Whether a sale, financing, repositioning, advisory, or recapitalization execution. Are you interested in how to make your ambition a reality? Learn more at jll.com slash voices. That's jll.com slash voices. 